So what happens if we just let CWD go? We don't do anything. That's one of the things that one of our listeners asked and we dug into on this episode with Matt. Yeah, here we are on the final episode of the CWD Chronicles, Ashley. And what we did was go through and ask our listeners to ask questions. We, we picked out four good ones. And one of them was, what happens if we just do nothing? Can we just let natural selection take place? And Matt went through that really well. It's basically, you know, replacement and, you know, does are having a couple of fawns a year. And by the time that the disease would come to maturity, you know, it, we wouldn't have uh, just natural selection taking place. It would be kind of replacing itself in the population. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And there's certainly still uh, impacts to doing it. It's not that we're free and clear and that's the route we should go. And Matt does a great job in this episode of disentangling the nuance around that. Um, and how that all works. We had another great question talking about just the meat, no pun intended, of the logistics around butchering your deer when you don't know yet if it's CWD positive or not, um, and how to protect yourself and go about that the best way. Yeah, there's some disinfectant, some ways you can disinfect your gear uh, that, that folks should use if they think, or even if they've tested positive, they, you should definitely utilize. Um, we also talked a little bit about live tests. I think everybody kind of goes, when's the live test going to come along? Mm -hmm. Actually, you know more about that than I, but we're going to improve. We're going to, sorry, uh, include some links in the show notes about, uh, some of the latest research. Yeah. Matt also does an excellent job of talking about the barriers to that and the challenges around making a field or live test widespread and available to everyone. I mean, maybe one day in the future, um, but I think we're not there yet. And he really does a good job of disentangling the why around that. Yeah, we covered a lot. It was a fun series. Um, you know, it, it's a complicated issue. We're, we're really glad we got our listeners engaged in this last one. We appreciate our supporters. We're lucky to have so many awesome wild cervids in North America and our, in our country and the ability to, you know, harvest them and just experience them. And it's a, it's a resource we need to take care of. Um, thank you to you, Ashley, your, your science background, your, your acumen, your steady hand through all this has been awesome. I told Matt before we started, you're the brains behind the operation. I'm just the uh, radio DJ that plays another track. I like to think of it. So uh, thank you so much. <laughs> It was fun. Yeah, thank you. You have been an excellent DJ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the other thing I would say is we have a couple uh, really great resources that we're going to link to in this sh um, show. Matt had a, a project that they've been working on for two years that has come to fruition, and it uh, state wildlife agencies can input their own information about where they found CWD and what their regulations are. So it's kind of a one-stop shop for folks um, to go and take a look at things. So we'll have a link to that and then a link to all the current research that's happening. I think over 80 projects um, that are happening on CDBD right now. So if you want to be informed, we've got the tools for you to do that. All right. Enjoy this last episode, folks, of the CWD Chronicles with Matt Dumphy. Happy trails. Chronic Wasting Disease an always fatal and definitely complex neurological disease afflicting cervids across North America and beyond. More than 50 years after its discovery, the impacts of this disease are ramping up quickly while hunters are having to make tough decisions about how they hunt and feed their families. 
What does this mean for the future of big game hunting? What can be done to stop the spread and conserve our hunting traditions? The Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles explores these issues with leading experts from around the country and looks hopefully to a future full of healthy, wild cervid populations. Brought to you by NWF Outdoors and Artemis. Welcome to the Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles. Howdy everyone, Aaron Kindle and Ashley Chance here for the wrap episode of CWD Chronicles. And for this, we have Matt Dumphy back. Matt Dumphy is our expert in residence, if you will. He's been helping us get through this and and think through what we needed to ask, who we needed to have on, and uh, we appreciate him being here. Good morning to both of you. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Excited to be here for the final, the wrap up. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks for being here. Well, let me tell you about Matt again, because we ought to, if if folks didn't hear our first episode, we'll just remind you of who Matt is. He's the director of special programs for the Wildlife Management Institute or WMI, as folks may hear. Um, And he also manages the CWD Alliance on behalf of all the NGOs that contribute to that, uh, to the Alliance of which National Wildlife Federation is a part. And he's been working on CWD related stuff since about 2006. And he does all kinds of stuff in the wildlife space. You know, he has experience and education and research background in wildlife disease, ecology and management, outdoor recreation, R3, and uh, North American fish and wildlife management just in general and hunting education. So he's got the full spectrum and thanks again for joining us, Matt. It is my pleasure to be back, although I feel that uh, I have an advantage over everybody else and that I can correct any silliness that we did on the first episode. So we'll we'll try to tighten things up for this last one and make it a good wrap-up. So appreciate the opportunity to be back. Well, thank you. Uh, and <clears throat> luckily, you know, mostly, mostly we need a little silliness just to keep it rolling. But uh, luckily, I don't think we got into too much and, and you can you can correct those and get us back on the right track. So thank you. I wanted to just give a quick overview, just uh, really brief for folks who haven't listened. If you if you want to get the chance, if you get the chance to go listen to our episodes, we had Matt on and he he gave us a huge overview of, you know, the history of the disease, where it came from what we're doing now, you know, how it impacts cervids, all the things that you kind of need to know to start thinking about the disease and and what we need to do about it. And then we had Colin Gillen on and he gave us a broad overview. Um, He's from Oregon. He's worked in CWD management and captive cervid industry management for a long time. And he gave us an overview of captive cervids and how that impacts the disease and and the issues we have to deal with there. Um, And then we had Kip Adams on and he is from the National Deer Association, and he helped us discuss kind of how, you know, hunters need to be thinking about this, um, what the National Deer Association's been doing, and just the way the role hunting really plays in managing CWD. And then we had Kelly Straka, and she gave us the state agency perspective. Kelly has worked for a few different state agencies, and she's the chief of the wildlife division no, of the no, no, no. sorry okay correct me yeah wildlife section manager wildlife section manager i think it changed from the chief and and yeah. that's my bad so yeah. apologize she's the wildlife section manager for the minnesota department of natural resources 
and really discuss there. I mean, I think as folks think about this, you know, they, they think, oh, the agencies are just supposed to do this stuff. You know, why haven't they done it or what are they doing? And, and kind of some of the difficulties the agencies face when they're trying to deal with such a onerous disease, um, you know, the financial toll it takes, the emotional toll, you know, all those folks are obviously wildlife enthusiasts and wildlife lovers and, and you know, the, the kinds of things they deal with. So we appreciated that episode. And then last before this one, we had uh, Representative Ron Kine from Wisconsin, and he really laid out the Chronic Wasting Disease Research and Management Act and what it is designed to do. So we just wanted to give you all an overview. If you want to go back and check those episodes, there's a link in a lot of our social media. You can see all of them on one page. We'll include this episode as well. Uh, but those are the ones we we found. And if maybe maybe if we get enough feedback, if we find enough people that say, hey, you just missed this thing, I think Ashley and I would be into revisiting a special subject if we had to. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to Ashley because she's going to help us think about a couple of other things that that we wanted to, to, to look at as we try to wrap this up. Yeah, so I think at the outset of this series, we had a lot of hope and a lot of good ideas that we wanted to explore. And I, I think we, we did come across a lot of them that are in the works. Um, we talked about some things that seemed a little out outlandish maybe like the e-word that we talked about um the potential for eradication <laughs> with kelly straka and we're going to talk more today about the potential for a live test we've touched on that um so there's you know hopefully some novel solutions in the works that don't exist today um especially you know once we get the cwd research and management act passed that's going to allow for a lot more research and intensive management to occur hopefully leading to more breakthroughs um in the you know battle against CWD, but in the meantime, and what we're circling back to today is really the basics. I think we had a conversation with Matt a couple of weeks ago, and he said it best. He was like, you know, there's a lot of exciting things we can talk about, but it all kind of comes back to you know the same basic tenets: get your deer tested. You know, and I think anybody that's heard this series or the bulk of it, even if you live in a state where CWD hasn't yet been found or the state wildlife agency isn't funding those tests, get your deer tested. It's It might be onerous because you're going to have to jump through some hoops and you might have to pay for it. But my goodness, that's a huge thing that you as a conservationist can do. Um, another thing we talked about is herd reductions in areas of high prevalence or in, you know immediately surrounding a discovery um, of CWD in the population. That's a huge thing. And that's not in the hands of the public generally, but public support goes a long way in facilitating that, being able to even take place. Um, and then baiting. Obviously, congregating animals is going to spread disease. We, we all know that. That's a very basic thing, whether it's you know related to CWD or not. Uh, in this case, it is. And there's, there's research supporting um, you know, the increase in prevalence of CWD prions at mineral sites or salt lakes, I think it was mineral sites, um, so yeah, those are kind of the three things that we keep coming back to is get tested, support intensive management actions um, when necessary, and then don't congregate animals. Another thing that I would like to talk about, and Matt, jump in at any time here because I'm sure you have, um, you're more in the know on these specific instances than I am, but just in the past six months, so hardly longer than we've been, than this series has been in production, 
we've gotten, let's see, four states that have tested positive that didn't before. So Idaho, Alabama, Louisiana, and North Carolina have all popped positive. Um, That's crazy. I just want to pause here. Like in the last six months, okay, we've known about this disease since the late 60s. And in the last six months, we've got four states that have popped. And then we've got new CWD locations in a couple states um, like Wyoming and unfortunately, Minnesota. This came out right after we recorded with Kelly. Um, They found a free ranging deer with CWD, I think by Grand Rapids, so north of the Twin Cities. So all that is to say... Uh, is not to say this thing is moving fast because really probably what's happening is we're finally catching up to tracking its movements. Um, But if you don't have it yet, you probably will soon. And that's kind of to underscore all of the things that you can do and the management actions you can support and the importance of that. So Matt, feel free to comment on any of that. (laughs) Well, there's... Uh, you you said it, and I guess where my brain goes is not necessarily um, looking in uh, or thinking too much about the specifics, but sort of the broader picture. And I think it's been reinforced by our previous conversation and many of the other conversations you all have had on this podcast, and that <clears throat> there's a few things that we've known about CWD for a long time. Um, that is that as Mike Miller and uh, John Fisher said, that the first one is never the first one. Um, and that uh, we find this disease as we test more for it, that there's this long, slow progression as it moves within and across North America. And that has always been the case. Um, it's, it's very easy in a long-lived disease like this, something that we've been really that we've known about for over 40 years and really intensively managing for probably 20 is that, um, you know, that's, that's a couple people's careers, but the disease has been doing what it's been doing, um, for that time, regardless of how we feel about it or not. And there have been times when, particularly in the early 2000s, when there was a lot of federal money available to the tune of 14 to $18 million a year for agencies to do surveillance, we found it in a lot of places. That's when um, all of the hotspots in Wisconsin and Colorado and some of the other um, uh, original states really found higher numbers of it. And ever since then, there's been this punctuated equilibrium of a couple years goes by, we don't find it, and then some surveillance efforts increase and then, oh my gosh, two, three, four, five states seem to fall in succession uh, or Canadian provinces. And we're going through one of those times right now. And, but, but it's good to remember that the disease, it just didn't decide to get up and run across a bunch of state lines or borders um, at, at the end of the pandemic. You know, <laughs> it didn't wake up and get back to normal. It's been doing its thing consistently and our efforts just picked it up um, and it happened to pick it up in all these different states. There's there's an amount of randomness in here. There's an amount of luck in picking up individuals, particularly when prevalences are at low levels. You all talked about that some with uh, Dr. Straka. But it's just good to know that um, just because we see these these increased points of, of uh, detection doesn't necessarily mean the disease is acting any differently. So I guess all that to say... This enforces to me how we as a, as a species and a society need to look at this disease. It's here. 
um, with the tools that we have. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon, and we're going to have to deal with it, but we need to extend our horizons. And what we don't need to do is sort of the fall into the temptation of hyperbole and saying, oh my gosh, everything's going to die, or let's rally the troops and we're going to beat this thing. The CWD has shown proponents of both those sides um, to be ill-advised over time. And so the best thing we can do, whether we're hunters or wildlife enthusiasts or politicians, is recognize we have to match the long, slow march of this disease with similar resilience and dedication and requisite funding. That's a good point, Matt. And I, it it's a bit unsexy, right? It's, it's kind of like, man, we wish there was a magic pill or a silver bullet or something, but it is what it is. It's, it's, it's part of managing something like this, that, that just hangs around forever. Um, <clears throat> I, I want to do something on this, you know, episode that we previewed, uh, through some, some communications to our followers and listeners. And that is to get, uh, some questions from our, from our followers. I think, you know, we sit here and we're kind of in a vacuum a little bit, right? We talk to the people we talk to and hear what we hear, but, we wanted to know a little bit about what other people were thinking about as they listened to this. So we went out and recruited folks or, or at least asked folks to send some questions and we got some good ones. So we're going to go over those with you, Matt. Um, Great. Because you're the best one to answer them in our mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And for that, we're going to send our, our people who sent in some questions that we're using here, some, some nice swag, some NWF outdoors hats, like this and some stickers and some Artemis hats and stickers. So Matt, you're going to get one too. You, you get to choose. You can either get an Artemis hat for, for you or your, or your wife or daughter and, uh, or an outdoors hat, or we, we would even send you both actually, but, uh, I'll go both. Anyway, yeah. just a, just a thank you. If you're going to okay. offer me free so stuff, we'll do both. Send, send me all the free stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Two, well, two hats for two episodes seems fair. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You've earned it. Well, Matt, let's jump into the first one. And this one, you know, I think is, uh, is probably a, I think, I think some of us know, but I think it's, it's, it's more of an obvious question than maybe I thought about it at the first time when I read it. And it's kind of two or three questions, but one main one, and this comes to us from a fellow, John Mattis in Loveland, Colorado, right down the road from you. But, uh, he, he wants to know, you know, why aren't all the deer dead And and he, he follows that because so that you follow his logic and says, if chronic wasting disease is this contagious, which we know it is, and results in 100% fatality once animals are infected, then why haven't eventually all the elk and deer died? And then he follows that with, where is their genetic selection taking place where some animals are, you know, kind of getting more resistant to it? So can, let's, let's address that one. Well, well, John, if you're listening, that was a great question, and it's at the heart of a lot of the challenges with this disease. The the answer to why it hasn't killed all deer, and I would even say the reason why it hasn't killed them as fast as we originally modeled that it might, is because simply it takes so long for the infected animal to succumb to the disease, to die from it ultimately. Remember in deer species, the average incubation period, you know, is uh, 20 months or so, between 18 and 24 months. So that's, that's a couple years old. A doe can pop out a couple fawns in that amount of time before she succumbs. So, you know, when actually this is a good time to think about this. As we're coming out of a global pandemic, a lot of people have heard this phrase, um, are not, which is sort of the replication number of infections. And when you have an are not above one, it means 
the disease is advancing. And um, in highly infectious diseases, you know, the, the higher the R number, the faster it's, it's replicating and goes even exponential. Well, CWD, it advances so slowly that the death of the one individual, the infected, let's say it's a doe in this case, um, she's able to replace herself in the population um, one, two, or maybe even three times before she dies from the disease. So what that means is the population numbers are still fairly stable, at least at low prevalence levels. What we do know is that when enough of those does in a population, however, let's say around 25 to 30% are infected, then they have a harder time keeping up with the mortality that that population is, is experiencing because of CWD, because so many are infected. But that's essentially, um, I guess, if there was a blessing in this disease, it's that it, it doesn't uh, kill animals before they have a chance to reproduce. It presents its own challenge, though, because that doe is also in the landscape shedding these proteins, these infectious proteins into the environment that may infect other members of her family group. And, and we know that members of her family group are more susceptible. So long answer um, to a, a very good question, but it's basically, yeah, they, the animal can replace itself several times over in the population, particularly when we're talking about does, before the disease kills them. So what we actually see um, before the prevalence rates get really, really high is that oftentimes CWD can make a little bit younger population. So we have animals that disappear from older age classes, particularly um, in bucks. We see sort of that five and six-year-old class oftentimes disappear when prevalence rates get fairly high. But in terms of the actual numbers, that's why we still see herds relatively stable. Uh, very well said, Matt. I think another point I want to make here is that transmission can happen in utero. So a doe with CWD that is pregnant with a fawn, that fawn, we didn't think this, we didn't used to think this could happen, but it's been shown now that a fawn can be born CWD positive. Matt, yes or no? Is that true? That, that is correct. We, we don't know how often that happens. That's a big question, but we do know that it does happen okay. to some degree. So with that knowledge in mind, in talking about I think the next part of this question talked about why not just let natural selection take place. If we did just let it run wild, unabated, and we had high enough prevalence levels and enough fawns were being born CWD positive, they would die by the time they're two and a half years old, maximum. And I don't know about where everyone lives, but any place that I've lived, it's pretty rare to find a two and a half year old buck with really sexy to use Aaron's term antlers. Um, so that's another factor in all of this that we have to think about. It's not just the number of deer on the landscape, but also managing for hunters and what they want and thinking about, you know, if everybody, that's something else to think about. It's not just the pure mortality side of it, but like you said, younger populations have other implications beyond just total numbers. Right. And, and there's, there's a couple other points I'd add in there is that first off, we already know what can happen if CWD is allowed to advance on its own. Um, there's several states that have good examples where no management has been done. And we see prevalence rates in excess of 50% in some of those areas, meaning one out of every two animals is infected with the disease. Uh, and we have not seen a top end threshold in some of those populations. So we already know the answer there. Natural selection, if it if it were to work, 
it would likely end up wiping out some populations, um, maybe other populations because of different behavioral modifications or movement patterns might be able to sustain CWD at lower levels. That's a bigger question we don't know yet because we haven't lived with this disease long enough, largely because, because the disease life cycle is so long. So we already know what will happen if we let it run. Um, therefore, we have an obligation as managers of the public trust to do something because we know what will happen. Um, the second thing is uh, just building on where you were going there, Ashley, in that um, even if a population is sustaining its overall numbers and it's just getting younger, if 30 or somewhere between 20, 30% of the animals are infected with CWD, we know they are unhealthy. That means that populations becomes more susceptible to other diseases entering the population that these more unhealthy animals are going to be more susceptible to and may pass on to other healthy members in that herd. So no matter which way you look at it, letting CWD go um, unmanaged will have very deleterious effects on small and large scale populations. So we're obliged to do something. Very good. Okay. Our next question is from, I'm going to do my best to pronounce this correctly, Gary Groenmertz in Westbury, New York. And his question is, have state agencies considered a program that allows the issuance of additional tags if a hunter harvests a CWD positive deer after it's been verified by testing? Ah, great question, Gary. Um, and the answer is yes, in many different permutations, whether it's um, everything from providing a replacement tag to even incentivizing hunters to harvest more animals. Um, and if they get a CWD positive one, um, getting a tag replacement, there's the, the famous or infamous Ernebuck program in Wisconsin and several variations of it where you have to harvest several does to earn a buck tag. A bunch of different strategies have been employed to not only help hunters feel better um, by giving them another opportunity to fill their freezer with CWD free meat, but also incentivize or change their behavior to harvest more animals of the right type. Um, this plays into the management uh, that I, I believe Dr. Strocker referred to in her episode, which which is, you know, a deer isn't necessarily a deer when it comes to CWD, or there are some deer that are more valuable than others based on their probability of infection. We want to incentivize the removal of those. So a lot of those programs have been tried. What I can tell you, it's with varying success, depending on what we're defining as success. So it's hard to tell from your question exactly where you're going with this, but I can imagine two ways. One is success would be having hunters stay in the field because they get a chance to um, uh, make up for a, a, an infected animal that they're not going to consume. I think that's good. If, if your goal is to keep hunters engaged, that's a good option. We, but we also have to weigh is in uh, let's say Western states where um, uh, licenses are limited and um, you know the, the maximum number of tags is already given out. For, for every replacement tag, we're increasing harvest rates, which will have a herd impact. So we have to be careful there. We can't just do a blanket um, policy in all places because we could start to over harvest um, in in some so, uh, in some herds. But if your if your objective with a program like this was to reduce deer numbers. Um, if that was deemed appropriate for a certain herd that had CWD at, at, at higher prevalence rates, then this could be very effective by incentivizing the, that hunter to go out and essentially try again. Um, uh, one more thing my, my, my brain remembers here is, is many of these incentive type programs 
hit a wall that (laughs) for a reason that I think is, is encouraging for hunters. And that is uh, a hunter will only take so many deer. And, and I, I want to say the number is around three and several states, Michigan was one, I think Wisconsin was another that did some research on this to figure out, can we get hunters to just remove all of the animals we need in an area um, to the level of herd density that we want to get at? And what we found is you can't get hunters to take an unlimited number of deer as soon as their freezer is full. And as soon as their direct friends and family freezer are full, they won't go out there and just whack another deer which again, I think is kind of heartening, but also somewhat challenging. And, and at least in the sense that we, that, that there is a cap on how much we can use hunters to remove deer numbers. Um, we can push it so far, but there may be some places where we do have to do something like targeted culling to reduce numbers even further. Thank you, Matt. One of my favorite things about you is, is you're a master in the subtle art of nuance. Ah. <laughs> right. You, you always have these really thought out measured answers that are, that are, you know, level headed. And, you know, I, I like how you kind of take the emotion out of this because it's such an emotional issue. And it's really, it's really important that we get, you know, level headed straight answers and, and, and don't react too heavily. So thank you for that first. You, you bet. And, and you're going to have to tell that to my wife. <laughs> well, maybe you're good at it in this and, and maybe you need a little practice in other areas. But, that sounds uh, absolutely fair. Let's jump to the next question. <laughs> uh, this one's an interesting one and I, I'm, I'm really curious about your answer. And uh, it is from Austin Moon in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And he asks, why is CWD more prevalent in deer than in other ungulates? <laughs> great question. Um, really great question. And honestly, I'm reminded of... Um, probably the weirdest question I've ever been asked. And I was 16 years old when I was asked this question. My first job was um, in forest service campgrounds, cleaning toilets and fire pits. So that's where I started. And um, that, that job actually had a lot of interaction with the public. And I can remember this couple, young couple from Denver had driven up and they were staying at the campground and they were chatting as I was uh, cleaning a toilet, which is not the great place, greatest place to have a conversation, but got to do what you got to do. And they asked me what, at what elevation do deer turn into elk? And I, I have thought about where that question <laughs> came from. I've heard this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've thought about where that question could have come from and where in the world, but when this question of um, uh, why is it, more prevalent in deer than other ungulates. I think about this, this, you know, this perspective a lot of us have. And the, the, the reality is just, I mean, the simplest and, and maybe almost arrogant sounding answer is that, well, things like elk and pronghorn are not deer. Well, what that really means is the prion diseases, these transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, the TSEs, um, they're, they're weird in a bunch of ways. And we've talked about a bunch of ways on here. But one of the weirdest things about them is that they are very specific in <clears throat> who they affect in terms of um, uh, uh, susceptible animals, uh, what types of individuals, and their rules of transmission. So, for instance, uh, the the cattle version of a prion disease, mad cow disease, that that disease is not infectious in the environment. In other words, cattle can't pick it up just from the soil or from plants. But in scrapie and CWD, it is spread and can be picked up by susceptible animals in the environment. We don't know why those two prion diseases um, that basically have the same mechanism function with different rules. So 
in your question is the same answer there. For instance, why do elk seem to have lower prevalence and infection rates than deer? Particularly, let's look at a state like Colorado, where you have um, a lot of areas where deer herds have CWD, um, uh, yeah, or uh, native uh, deer herds have CWD infection rates between one and, or prevalence rates between one and 10% that overlap with a lot of elk herds. But if you look statewide, only th- 30% of the elk herds are infected with CWD as opposed to 55% of the deer herds. And I wish I had a great answer for you other than a couple things are different in elk in, in, in that we know the disease progresses differently than in, in elk than it does in deer. The prions collect in s- tissues in different concentrations in elk than they do deer. Um, we, we know that slight changes in how an individual animal makes the normal prion proteins that CWD, remember, takes over and misfolds to turn into the bad form of the disease. There's little, there's slight variations in how individuals even create the amino acids in that protein. And there's difference between species. It's very, very slight differences in how that amino acid is constructed in the body. And what we, we think is some of those slight differences actually have an impact in how susceptible a species or individual is, how fast the disease works in that species and individual, and ultimately how much it even sheds into the environment. So it's not a really satisfying answer. Um, and and I, wish it, it, uh, I wish I had a more direct one, but the bottom line is different species and even different individuals within species are susceptible to CWD in different ways. Uh, in the case of something like pronghorn, for instance, that pronghorn are in a different family than deer and elk. They're Entilocapridae as opposed to Cervidae. And there's just enough difference between those two families that pronghorn aren't naturally susceptible to this disease. Um, and you know, we can look at an even weirder parallel in that mad, or excuse me, uh, cattle, when you put them in pens with positive deer for 13 years, they don't contract a prion-like disease in natural infection, even though they have their own form of it. So again, there's a lot of odd rules when it comes to these diseases, which is why so much research is needed, because we need to look at each species. We need, need to look at the individuals with each species. We need to understand almost at a molecular level what is happening so that we can make management decisions about how we work with the disease within and among the different species that exist in the same area. All right, our next question is from Sarah Mueller in Pennsylvania, and I feel like this is a somewhat basic question, at least on the surface, but I know it's a question that every hunter has asked themselves at some point. So we are just now in a CWD zone, kind of on the edge. Should I get my deer tested? Can I eat the meat if it's CWD positive? I'm nervous about using my good knives to butcher if I get prions that will never come off of of them. And other states have lived with CWD for years, but Pennsylvania is pretty new. How do I navigate this? Uh, great question, Sarah. And I, I do know a Sarah Mueller in Pennsylvania. I wonder if this is the same one. This would be the kind of uh, well-informed you know question her. you would ask. Okay. So, <laughs> hi, Sarah. Um, several good questions in there. So, let's sort of take them um, in succession here. Number one, should you get your deer tested? My Advice is if you are in an area that is close to where CWD has been found, let's let's hearken back to what we said at the beginning of this podcast, which is the first one you find is never the first one. Um, if there's one fairly close to where you hunt, there's a good probability that animals where you hunt have the disease, at least a higher probability than, than if you were far away from a positive. So I would recommend absolutely get your animal heart or get your animal tested. 
Secondarily, if it comes back positive, should you eat it? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, every agency I know of, uh, state agency or federal agency, has the same recommendation. If your animal is positive, don't consume it. I know that's confusing because we say that out of one corner of our mouth and the other corner of our mouth, we say, hey, there's never been any documented case of a human getting the disease. And hey, we really don't think that there is, or, or let's, let's put it another way. We think there's a robust um, species barrier between humans and deer. Um, so if we say that over the, out of the other side of our mouth, here's, here's the reason why. The reason is because there's this area of uncertainty in between. And when you have an area of uncertainty of not knowing exactly what could happen because we can't test things the way we want to, you know, we don't want to put a bunch of humans in <laughs> or inject a bunch of humans with positive CWD brain homogenate to see what will happen. Since we're not going to do that, well, we have to take some other measures and let's follow the precautionary principle. And if it's positive, don't consume it. Your other question is about your good knives. And no, please do not throw away your good knives. There's absolutely no reason to do that. Uh, a, a good study was completed recently. I want, is it the National Institutes of Health? Maybe saying that wrong. Um, Na National Research Organization uh, did some work on this, how uh, on how to clean stainless steel from infectious prions. They use stainless steel wire and then kind of coated that wire with CWD positive ukumpucky and then try different sterilization techniques. And basically what they found is if you soak stainless steel wire in a 40% bleach solution for at least five minutes, um, they couldn't detect any prions on that wire anymore. So that's the advice I give is that um, take your knife, soak it, uh, let's go go for 10 minutes. Um, at least the metal parts in a 40% bleach solution, you should be fine. One caveat I will say is that these steel wires that were used in the study were, were clean wires. In other words, there weren't hunks of flesh or tissue. So we don't know how far the bleach penetrates, but we're pretty sure that if there is hunks of tissue or let's say large droplets of dried blood, that solution won't penetrate. So scrub your knives with soap and water first, get all the chunks off, and then you can sterilize them using this 40% bleach solution. Matt, I've got a follow-up question to that because I the same question goes through my mind every time we butcher a deer. We don't live anywhere near CWD um, currently, but we have knives that we use stainless steel blade, but then the handle is plastic and it's very slightly textured. And I always wonder like, is this really, is it really getting the handle? Even if we scrub it and there's no visible tissue or blood, what do you think about that? Well, the the good news that I would say in your case is that the plat or the handle is plastic and it isn't something porous like wood or um, like a, a leather bolster, which a lot of old family traditional hunting knives often have. So that plastic is still a fairly um, a, uh, let's say bio rigid surface, so stuff can't penetrate it. Since it's textured, what that means to me is that just make sure you scrub it well before you soak it, but then absolutely soak it. And based on what we know uh, with current research, you should be fine. Thanks, Matt. I I think there's a one other part of this too, and and that is kind of back to what Ashley said in the beginning. You know, Sarah's asking about getting your deer tested. I mean, is it is it reasonable to say? I mean, we should just take on as the sporting community that everybody should just start getting tested. I mean, it seems like we would get a lot of new data points about where it is and, and what to do. And it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more money to pay, obviously, 
depending on which state you're in, but is, I mean, if you, if you could wave your magic wand, would that be your recommendation? Oh, uh, <laughs> so many things I would do if I had that magic wand as it starts to spiral. Um, first, I think what I would do, uh, well, not necessarily, but sort of, and the, the reason is there's, there's two different reasons to do surveillance. One is to um, understand what C, where CWD is in an area and to understand the impacts of any management on it. So use it as very much a surveillance and sort of data collection tool. The other way to think about it is from an individual health perspective, a, a tool for a person to decide what goes into their mouth and body and, and the, the risk associated with that. Um, I'm, I can't speak to an individual's indiv- you know, risk assessment to look at the data and say, you know what, for me, I want to just absolutely make sure that all my animals are uh, not detected with CWD using a test versus someone else who says, I, I choose not to. I, I, I don't think that latter position is a prudent one, but I also recognize the individual's choice to make that. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say we should all do that. What what I would do with my magic wand is um, make sure that state fish and wildlife agencies had the budget and resources necessary to conduct targeted surveillance at at um, appropriate and sustainable levels so that we can, in fact, better document where the disease is moving, because that'll ultimately impact hunters' decisions. If we are testing everything at the right frequency and in the right um with the right procedure to detect CWD at very low levels, then we're going to know how better to manage all aspects of the disease from the public side all the way through the wildlife management side. There's one other part of this we have to think about too, and that is testing capacity. If everybody who hunts deer or, or cervids in proximity to CWD positive areas or within CWD positive areas wanted to get their animals tested, I can tell you right now today, we don't have that capacity. Um, maybe this is another thing we can talk about, but there's some very good reasons why that capacity is low and some things we have to really think about dealing with um, if we were to increase that capacity. But we have to keep that in mind right now. What I don't want to do is tell a bunch of people, hey, just this is easy to go and do and you can get results back rapidly. That just simply isn't the case right now. So again, part of this nuance uh, answer to just blanketly state that I don't think is prudent. Um, But at the same time, I also want all the best data we can possibly get to make sure we understand how the disease is moving across the landscape and how impactful or not our management techniques are. Well, another great nuanced answer. Thank you, Matt. Uh, we'll, we'll talk at the end a little bit too about kind of looking to the future, but obviously one of the gaps is testing capacity. I've heard that, you know, as we've talked to folks on this and, and as we've researched and thought about this. So that's one thing that we'll definitely be advocating for and looking for into the future. I wanted to go back to Matt about the pronghorn story because a couple years back, my son and I are hunting in Wyoming right in the middle of, you know, a CWD hot zone. And, you know, during our, the course of our hunting and just being out in the woods, you know, we started talking about CWD a little and I told him, you know, how it's jumped some species barriers and so on. And we get pronghorn and he says, are we going to test these for CWD? And I said, no, you know, they're different species. It's not going to work. He's like, yeah, but you also told me that it jumped species barriers and we're right in the middle of the CWD hot zone. You know, why, why aren't we testing these just to see? 
And I, I wondered what your answer to that would be. <laughs> yeah, as a parent myself, it's one more time you just say, because I said so, trust me, and then move on and change the subject. <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, and, and it actually reminds me of, of one of my favorite quotes from uh, Margaret Drabble, and that is, when nothing is sure, anything is possible. And so many times with CWD, this that quote crosses my mind because what unfortunately I'd have to tell your son is, well, it you know it doesn't, uh, but why specifically it doesn't, we really don't know. And so tell that to any rational human, and they're going to go, well, you're not the expert then, so anything could be possible, and maybe it does, or maybe it's going to. And and the answer is, you know, science is really poor at filling the void of stuff that it doesn't understand. And it takes a, and it's very bad at speculation. As a matter of fact, speculation is dangerous to science because it leads us down the road of false positives where we think something is there that really isn't. And there's a lot of history of, of wildlife science and other science in general that has taught us that we have to be very careful about what we're willing to prognosticate over and what we're willing to guess at. So the unfortunate reality is that, yeah, we don't know why it doesn't happen, but it doesn't. Um, what I what I would say in encouragement is that we have studied it pretty robustly, at least in, applied, in an applied sense of knowing, is it a significant factor for, the, for a bunch of other species? And we've identified pronghorn as one of many that aren't susceptible to it, and therefore we can be okay with it. I wish I understood exactly why as does the hundreds of other scientists out there. But we'll have to be content with a little bit of gray for the future. Well, I'm certainly happy that we don't have another species to worry about with that and that we can hunt pronghorn and and, and just enjoy them. So I'll, I'll take that as a good answer for now. And thank you, to, thank you to John and Gary and Austin and Sarah for sending some questions. And I want to just touch on one more thing with with what you just uh, touched on there, Matt, and that's the universal testing kind of question. Um, just unpacking that a little bit more, the logistics, the, you know, maybe how many testing facilities there are now, what would be involved if we move to universal testing? You know, how far are we from that? What, what kind of gaps do we need to fill? Well, I think it's a good question. When you say universal testing though, what does that mean to you? I think it means that every surveyed out there would be tested, you know, that there would be the ability at least to, to get it tested, to send it in and, and have reasonable results within a reasonable amount of time, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, the, the two reasonables you tacked onto the end of that are, are really um, where the rubber meets the road on this one. Um, reasonable amount of time, uh, reasonable amount of volume. He, here's, here's the, in a nutshell, here's the challenge when it comes to testing for chronic wasting disease. It's, it's what we're testing for and it's the amount of the thing that we're testing for. So we're looking for proteins, really, really small things. We talked about this in the first episode. Proteins are hard to find, um, so hard to find that we have to use indicators of them being there because we can't actually see them. So most of, and there are, there are a lot of diseases or conditions where whether in human medical science or wildlife science, we try to find very specific proteins. And we do that basically by finding or, or making antibodies that bind to those proteins and then being really clever about um, using ways to uh, light up those antibodies with uh, different sort of techniques. So basically, 
what we do is we find an antibody that is is kind of a Lego fit to the protein we're looking for. That antibody sticks to that protein, and then we use a chemical dye to quote unquote light it up, and then we can see it under a microscope. and And if you look at at uh, images online of this with CWD, you'll see it's often red. We can see these clumps of these specific antibodies that have linked to these the the CWD prions. We go, okay, hey, it's there. Well, in order to do that. That takes a bunch of things. It takes a trained and certified technician. It takes a laboratory that follows a certain level of certification and annual guidelines that's very expensive. It takes a lot of equipment. And then it takes a, a process. You have to take tissue. You have to grind tissue up. You have to centrifuge it. You have to pull off extra stuff. You have to let it sit in chemical. You have to spread it over plates. There's a lot of person hours involved. And then there's sort of wait times while um, various procedures are happening, while different chemicals are working. Then it still takes a human to get back in there, read the results, enter the results, and so forth. So all of that has to happen because we're looking for these really small things. And in the case of CWD, there are lower numbers of them. And probably the most more impactful thing is that they're relegated to very specific tissues. So this isn't like COVID. You know, maybe we're all thinking of like, hey, well, COVID's a virus. COVID's really small. And we have these at-home tests. Yeah. Well, the deal is when we swab our nose and mouths, we get this huge load of viral bodies. And that huge load of viral bodies is much easier to pick up. Well, when it comes to CWD, where all these little proteins we're looking for, where, where they're most aggregated are in like really life important tissues in the animal, brainstem, spinal column. And so to get in there and find that either before or after the animal is dead is, is tricky. And it still takes all of that equipment, time and facility to process it. Now let's let's think of a couple more different things. Number one is all of those technicians that would be required to do that, we're talking about tens of thousands of individuals. They're only doing that three to four months out of the year. What are they going to do the rest of the year? These are individuals who were trained and have careers in this. They're not just going to be doing some other job and then we can bring them in when the, the testing load is there. So they have to be involved in other projects. And frankly, if you're one of those technicians, you would rather be involved in a project that is sustainable over time because that means sustainable salary well into the future. You're not necessarily going to drop all of your other projects to focus on CWD sampling in the fall. So you can see where I'm going with this. If we actually break this concept down, and we look at the implementation of it, you can see why there's not a strong incentive to allow for something like universal testing. Frankly, it's just not practical and not realistic with what it takes to detect this disease. Um, if there was quicker, easier, like the, the idea of a field test, that would be great. But again, the problem we have in a field test is that the tissues that we can sample or that a hunter could easily sample, you know, the analogy of a, a nose swab for a COVID test, um, it's difficult for a hunter to get in there and do that. And the hunter doesn't have all the equipment to sample the tissues where it's found. And to use something like blood or some other tissue, there's just simply not enough of those prion proteins in those um, tissues or materials to make a test accurate enough. And this is where I'll end this sort of monologue accurate enough to be reliable. That's the heart of all this. Because of the complexity I just laid out, we have to think about reliability at the end of the day. What is a hunter 
or someone who's going to consume this meat, what are they really interested in? They want absolute 100% definitive answers as does this animal have CWD or does it not? And I think we, we talked about this a little bit on our first conversation, even with the best scenario that I laid out with the lab and the trained technician, the, uh, a test for CWD is not positive or negative. It's detected or not detected. You won't ever get a false positive, meaning you won't ever, you won't ever get a test that says, Hey, it's positive, but it was really negative, but you will get false negatives. Meaning you'll get a test back that just didn't pick up enough of the prion proteins to signal as as um, detected, but the animal could still be infected. We see this particularly with younger individuals. So with the technology we have now, even the best we have isn't a 100% definitive test. So every step we make away from that scenario, every step we move toward quicker, every step we move toward more volume, every step we move toward field test, we're going to pay for an amount of accuracy and reliability. Well, Matt, I was going to queue up a question about field tests and live tests, but you kind of swung your bat at all of that <laughs> with your last answer, which is much appreciated. Uh, one thing I also want to add, which is implied in all of the, you know, in the entirety of the answer that you gave is you kind of started with the process once the sample reaches the lab, but there's a bunch more logistics, time, money, and energy that have to come together to even get that number of samples to the labs, right? Absolutely. Which I think, obviously, the CWD um, Research and Management Act would help with. Um, it would help state agencies corral those resources and, you know, put in place the logistics to streamline that. But even still, your answer highlights um, a lot of the barriers that exist around field and live testing. I think I have <laughs> I have an idea that I would just like to mull over with you here. Um, so I know there was a paper that came out. I'll say recently, I don't, in the last few years, um, about basically taking a, a punch, like you would take a, a, you know, a three hole punch out of a piece of paper, a punch of the outer pinna of, of the ear. So a deer's ear, you take a tissue punch, you get this little plug of skin. Um, and then, you know, back in a lab somewhere they do, I think it was uh, amplification assay. So I'm not well versed in the specifics of all that, but basically like you were saying, there's super low concentrations of prion proteins in parts of the body like the outer ear, but if they were able to pick up even one, they could amplify that to a level where they were able to then say, yes, we've found CWD in this deer. Um, so when I heard about that, I thought back to all of my days as a wildlife technician working primarily on deer projects where we were catching deer for, I mean, you name it. It was any research project that a university or a state wildlife agency wanted answered. Um, so we catch the deer, we've got it in our hands for, you know, hopefully less than 20 minutes and then it's back on its merry way. But in that time we would do a number of things again, relative to the project, take biometric measurements, put a tracking device on it. And I thought, what if every research project on, that's out there catching deer, I know there's a lot at any given time because people care about deer, just took a little ear punch. And then it, it kind of gets around the issue that you were saying that we need that certainty as hunters. Certainty wouldn't be such a big deal if this was just kind of like, you know, the cream that we're scraping off. We send it in and maybe the accuracy isn't super high. I think I read something around the 80% mark um, in that paper. But what do you think about that? Tell me tell me it's a bad idea. Well, <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't tell you it's a bad idea. The I, I think you're talking about um, cyclic amplification 
um, uh, process, which is has been around for a long time. And yeah, it's a great way to take a small amount of, of thing that you're looking for and make it bigger. You basically take the proteins you're looking for, put it in a, a soup of all of the potential pieces that make up that protein, and then you're, you essentially make a bunch of copies of the original protein that you put in that amino acid soup. And then you amplify, that's where the amplification comes and you amplify the signal and yeah, you can see it. So even if there's one or two of the proteins you're looking for in that soup, you let the copy machine run for a while and it makes a bunch of copies, then you can pick it up using some of the techniques we were talking about before. So yeah, that's that's a, a, a you know very solid technique that's been used for many, many years. And you're right. Um, if we could use ear tissue or some other low prion density tissue, um, to, uh, uh, integrate into that process, that'd be great. Uh, sensitivity again is a function of how many seeds proteins you start with, but, um, that, that is feasible. What, what we run into, um, and, and I may need some clarification on, um, what you were asking initially, but what we run into is still the, the dollars and the time it takes to run all those samples in, in your scenario where you're saying these are, these are collared deer. And then we take the, the plug and if they come back positive, then we go ahead and, and youth find and euthanize those deer is, 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 am I capturing that correct? Oh, that would be next level. I was just thinking surveillance. So even like in fawn, you know, survival studies, you've got the fawn for, five minutes and maybe you're able to track it for the next six months before its collar falls off or its um, ear tag. But just to get that, just for tracking disease um, distribution. Sure. So, um, so to some degree, yes. What the, And these studies have actually been done. The thing I was just saying was done in Colorado and has been done in several places where an animal is collared and while they're collared, they take a sample. Now they usually take a sample of the tonsils or the retropharyngeal lymph nodes because it's there's way more protein or prion proteins there, particularly in deer. Uh, in elk, they'll use rectal mucosa and they'll take a sample there to do exactly what you're talking about. And then if the animal tests positive, they go back in and they can remove that animal from the population. That process is intensely expensive and person hour heavy um, because of all that goes into to immobilizing an animal, putting on a collar, going in, finding them again, the radio telemetry, all of that. And it's very cost prohibitive at scale. And scale, I think, is the biggest problem we have in many of these scenarios is we can absolutely do some of those things. But if we look at how many animals a biologist touches in, out of a population in a year, um, it's probably not nearly enough to get an unbiased sample of CWD prevalence. As a matter of fact, we have done research into what's the best way to pick up CWD. Um, Dr. Mike Miller from Colorado has done good work on this. And we find that there are other ways to more efficiently uh, sample populations, uh, focusing on roadkill. Um, and, and there are a lot of other techniques to specifically try to find those individuals that are infected so we can get a population level assessment. So the, this good idea that you have is another one of these frustrating things about the disease. It's good. The problem is always scale because we're looking at tens of thousands of animals often in a distinct herd. If you're looking in the West, it's a little bit different in the East, but lots and lots and lots of animals. And the ones that we can catch, the ones that we touch are often in proximities where we can touch them and grab them. They're easier to find. They're close to roads and their animals, um, many have argued, are, are more susceptible to being captured. And so we tend to bias our sample just by that. 
And then the second thing is we just don't touch enough of them. We don't sample enough of them, get our hands on enough of them to make that kind of a scenario really worth the cost of running all those tests. So I would, rather than thinking of it as an individual solution, where my brain goes is, I think there's a lot of um, smaller solutions like this, ideas that we can incorporate into a broader tapestry of solutions that an agency could use where possible, including, hey, whenever there's a roadkill, grab a sample if it hasn't decomposed too much and let's run that sample. There's lots of places where there are touch points within populations that if an agency was well-funded enough and had enough public support, they could vastly increase their power to detect and monitor CWD over time. That sounds like a fun job for like, you know, your first job out of college or maybe as an intern, just drive around and find roadkill and total interns. lymph nodes or brain tissue or something. <laughs> interns all the way. Yeah. Better than cleaning toilets, in my opinion. Preach. <laughs> uh, well, Matt, let's, let's back up before we go, because um, I know we're getting close to time here, but we wanted to think on the big, you know, worldly level a little bit too, on, on how we look at wildlife. Um, you know, how we manage wildlife as a philosophy, things like the North American model. Also, you know, how the non-sporting public might engage and, you know, what's their obligation here and how they may, how we may suggest that they engage here. You know, one of the things about the North American model, right, is it's, it has a, a few tenets, but it's, it's more of a philosophy. It's not necessarily strictly adhered to, it's not a rule, but, you know, I, I I've heard some different, you know, smatterings of ideas about, you know, maybe there's a couple little things we need to adjust within the model and that might help us get a better handle on things like chronic wasting disease. Can you touch on that at all? Sure. Um, first off, the, the North American model isn't a model in the sense that most people understand it. It's not predictive. It's not particularly even descriptive of all of the variables that go into it. I think it's more useful to look at the, the tenets of that model, the, the seven tenets you often hear as corrective measures in the past that we as a nation prudently made to get us where we are today. Things like you know putting wildlife in the public trust, managing wildlife according to science, um, no, u- no use of wildlife um, as, a, as a trade. Those type of things, those were fixes that we made. And those were all very good fixes. Now, I'm the first one to admit that those fixes have not been well applied. There's a lot of holes in how we applied those, let's say, philosophies. You know, I don't think we've integrated tribal organizations and tribal values into that a whole lot. We definitely speak out of both sides of our mouths when it comes to the privatization of wildlife. We mostly don't, but we kind of do. So we haven't got the implementation down perfectly, but... I think it's fair to say that the principles that we as a nation decided to follow in wildlife management have got us to the point of this rich heritage that we have here today. Now, to me, what all of what all of that really boils down to, the central tenant of how we do things in North America comes down to the public trust. Uh, too much of an egghead word. What that main, basically means is every person in the United States has an equal ownership of the wildlife in this state. So, or, or in, in, in that country. And it really goes down to state-specific jurisdictions. I live in Colorado. I own the exact same proportion of every deer in the landscape as my neighbor two doors down who is very anti-hunting. We both have equal ownership. Therefore, we should both have equal say. Now, based on our activities, there's different things we can do, but 
uh, to 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 um, relate that public trust. But that's really the the heart of it. And to me, this is the heart of the question: What can we do about CWD? Regardless of whether you're a hunter or you just care about healthy wildlife populations, um, you you have a responsibility as the owner of that that widget of wildlife, as as the owner of that public trust, to manage it well. Agencies are only the 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 trust managers. They manage according to science and based on what the public wants. So we all have a role here. Hunters' roles are fair are more obvious, and and you all have touched on that frequently in this podcast. Everybody else, um, based on surveys of the American public, we know that well over eighty percent of folks have very strong wildlife values, and wildlife health is important. So you know what can they do? Um, there's some simple ones that have already been addressed. Ashley, I think you covered it a little bit in the, in the beginning, you know, no baiting. Um, I would extend that to say, don't feel, feed wildlife, birds or otherwise, period. And I know that'll ruffle some feathers, no pun intended, but there's a lot of good research to establish why us doing that is a poor use of our public trust and how we actually cause more problems there. There's political action that can be taken. It doesn't matter if you don't hunt or even if you're anti-hunting, if you support um, healthy wildlife populations, you can get behind initiatives in state and federal agencies that help support chronic wasting disease, not unlike um, the piece of legislation that you all talked about in the last episode. And finally, to stay educated and not fall into the hyperbole that this disease is is often succumbs to. It's you know it's it's either a zombie apocalypse or it's an invention by state fish and wildlife agencies. Um, no, take a more nuanced approach, do some more learning, understand what this disease is and that it's going to be here for a long time and accept that for what it is. And then actually take some actions, sim- simple things that we just mentioned to invest in the future of that public trust for the generations that are going to follow you. The great Matt Dumphy folks, he, he's teaching nuance 101, uh, on Tuesday and Thursday evenings. Thanks. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, that's the struggle, you know. I, I mean, I think nowadays, especially, or or just you know, a recent trend, right? Is folks want things to be kind of black and white. They want kind of a simple answer, you know. Uh, here's what we need to do, and it's just real clean and cut and dried. And that's just not going to be possible with this thing right now. I mean, I think that's a take home message here that that I really want people to to understand and that you need to need to be educated. You need to be diligent. You need to stay engaged and and forever. Right. I mean, there's not really a, it seems there's not really kind of an end point to this, at least in sight. Well, it it depends on, you know, what you say is end point. With all of that said, uh, I I do think there are some simple things. Um, Number one is regardless of your use or, or value toward nature, recognize that you are in charge of it. It's your public trust. If you don't like how things are going, absolutely get involved. Um, If you're a hunter, follow the guidelines that have been well-established in this podcast and other places. If you're just a wildlife enthusiast, look carefully at your actions and behaviors and don't do the stuff that just feels good in the short term. Um, Think about how you know, uh, how you might be impacting nature from whether you're feeding wildlife or, um, whether you should, you're supporting initiatives, um, uh, that, that are more in line with what that species actually needs. So it, it re- to me, that really is the, the take home message is Remember, this is your trust. This is your ownership. Get involved, stay involved. Um, 
and take take on the responsibility that's associated with that. And uh, don't just listen to everything that's out there, you know, uh, dig in a little bit. There's lots of good resources, this podcast being one, a lot of other good places you can get that information. But this is your heritage. Treat it as such. Thanks, Matt. I I think the last thing we want to we want to ask you is just to help us point to the future and maybe maybe staying with the uh, magic wand analogy. Maybe we can do a crystal ball analogy. <laughs> what does it look like in, in, in 20 years? Look into your crystal ball. Where are we at? Are we are we managing it better? Are we you think with technology, we'll have some new solutions you know, where are we going and, and what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, this, this a, that's a great way to end. And I'm actually a lot more um, encouraged and excited by the future than I have been in a long time, mainly because in the past, oh, uh, five to eight years, we really have found some things that will work. Um, so I think, I, I well, I'm actually going to lean back more toward the magic wand here because here's here's what I want. So I'll be pretentious here since you, and take advantage of the fact that you had me back here <laughs> twice. Go ahead. Here's what I want. What I want is that we we move to a place where we accept the world as it is. Um, we know the tools we have right now. We know the tools we wish we had, but wishing or reimagining tools that we don't have won't help us today. So for today, let's look at the success stories that are out there. Let's look at the good examples that many agencies have um, come up with and discovered, and let's apply those across borders and despite, in uh, let's say, maybe political or cultural or traditional pushback. Let's work together to accept that we actually can do something if we all are honest with what we often say in that, hey, we do believe in conservation. If you do believe in conservation, then by all means, there's things that we can be doing, some sacrifices you can make, but also some things you can enjoy to deal with the disease. So that's thing number one. We just accept that it's here. And with the tools that we have right now, it's not going away. The hope is that we do get some more tools that will help, but at least in the short term, the next 20 years, which honestly is short term for this disease, um, we have what we're probably going to have mostly. And so let's start building upon the successes that we have. That's thing number one. Thing number two is that we all get over this, the the, the peaks and valleys, sort of the, the, the sugar rush excitement of, oh my gosh, CWD is in a couple new states. We got to do everything. And nobody's been doing the right stuff in the past. That cycle is intensely detrimental. It pits one side against the other, and it makes everybody feel like nobody knows what's going on. And worst of all, to me, it undermines the huge amount of work that is happening right now. Even with this piece of legislation and the dollars that have come through, that may come through research, what a lot of folks don't understand is that there's over 80 projects going on right now. You can go on the Alliance, the CWD Alliance website, look under research and see a recent document that Dr. John Fisher helped put together of all ongoing and recently completed research projects related to CWD. There's a huge amount of, of work going in here. Thousands of scientists that are diligently um, working through millions of dollars of research funding from various pots to get us answers. So when we swing back and forth, we undermine and, and fail to recognize the importance of all the work that's getting done. That work is going to have dividends. So let's take a more long-term approach to this and recognize that everything we've known about this disease 10 years ago is still true today. And let's not fall into those peaks of valleys of awareness and anger and one group against the other. So that would be the second thing I wish we could do. And then finally is that 
we can use CWD as an example here in North America of how we should look at wildlife conservation. This isn't, this wildlife conservation shouldn't follow a short political cycle. It should not be relegated to conservative versus liberal. It should not be looked at within the span of one human's experience because it's so short, but instead we as society recognize this public trust that we have, this model of conservation we've developed over the past hundred years is amazing and unique in the world. And we as a culture across multiple future generations are going to look at it as such and manage it as such and not subject nature to the sort of arrogant perspective and short timeline of one human life. CWD has that inherent lesson. And if we learn that lesson with CWD, I think we as a culture could move to fixing a lot of other things, habitat loss, climate change, and so forth. Just remember, nature doesn't follow our rules. It is not subject to human righteousness. It's going to do what it's going to do, but we can really get in the way if we put our values on it. Well said, Matt. I feel like one of the things that strikes me in what you were talking about is the the flash and bang approach. And maybe we're a little bit guilty of that with this podcast, but I think the intention behind it is honest. People are bored. They're bored of CWD. I mean, especially people who have lived with it for, you know, multiple decades. No question. Um, sorry, I've got a little cameo here. And so what do you say about how we can... I just, it's hard for me to think about how we can bridge the gap between what you're talking about and the reality that I know to be true just from talking, you know, to fellow hunters on the ground. It's like either they're in it 100% all the way, or it's, I guess, to deal with it, maybe they just kind of put the blinders on. Yeah. Well, I think the answer there is deeply, deep within our humanity. And that is that we trust each other much more than we trust anybody on the outside. So there's problems associated with that. We've seen some of those problems with things like social media. Um, we've seen sort of the, the algorithms of anger. We've seen what happens when we incentivize our differences. But at the, at the end of the day, it's when you talk to your hunting partners that you go hunting with, um, it's when you engage with a public individual when you don't respond in kind when you know somebody says ah CWD is just made up by the government you don't just roll your eyes and go you're an idiot instead you go I hear what you're saying let's let's talk about that tell me more that invitation to be curious I think that's a solution for how we as uh, as hunters and as wildlife enthusiasts can change our own minds and establish a new pattern of communication where, yeah, we don't just yell at each other, but instead we invite curiosity. It sounds really hokey to say, but that, that really is it. Rather than getting angry and just calling somebody an idiot, let's get curious and say, where'd you get that perspective? And, and let me listen to yours so you might be able to listen to mine. We know as humans that gets us a lot more ground than shame, guilt, or ridicule. Preach, brother. Preach. I love it. I think it's a, I think you're talking about the solution to a lot of things, Matt, <laughs> thankfully. And so <laughs> I think folks should, should take your wise words. Uh, you know, I, I just want to say before we let you go too, we're just honored that you've agreed to spend this time with us and, and, you know, that you, that you're out there fighting and working for us, uh, all of us who care about servants. I think uh, we're we're really lucky to have you in our in our space, and 
just couldn't thank you enough for, for doing all you do and for spending this time with us and helping people better understand what we got going here. Well, I deeply appreciate yeah, absolutely. the uh, the invitation. And I really do appreciate the curiosity of both uh, you, Aaron, and Ashley, the way you've looked into this. I don't see this as a flash in the pan. I see this as an honest exploration of a complicated issue that if everybody listened to this series... Um, I think we would get where we need to go. This is definitely a long form conversation. And I think at the end of this, if folks do take the time to listen to the whole thing, they can come to a good solid perspective on not just CWD, but a lot of other things. So um, I'm encouraged by the work that you've done and deeply grateful for the fact that you've done it. Well, thank you so much. Those are, those are great words to end on. Uh, Ashley, anything else you want to say as we wrap up the series? I mean, there's nothing that hasn't been said, um, I think, but I would just say again, thank you to Matt. And if you, if you have any last words, the platform is yours to really put anything else you want out there. Um, but if not, I hope that this has been a service to the sportswomen and men that have listened. Um, and hopefully we had some non-hunters maybe that took a listen and have a little more information. Um, happy to glad that I got to be a part of this. And as Aaron noted at the, um, at the top of the show, we, I think would be happy to explore if there, you know, if three or four months from now, something comes up that a, a lot of folks are confused about or have questions about, we maybe could do a little mini catch up on that. But, um, Otherwise, thank you, Matt. Well, you're, you're welcome. I think my word, my last words would be in line with what you were saying. Let's stay curious. Let's keep our minds open. Let's keep adopting the newest science. And if in four or five months there's a chance to revisit this, let's do that. Amen, Matt. Folks, stay engaged. Uh, stay informed. Go tell your congressperson to help get the CWD Research and Management Act across the finish line. And uh, just stay diligent. And thanks for being a conservationist. Happy trails, everyone. The Chronic Wasting Disease Chronicles. A production of NWF Outdoors and Artemis.